Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. I got hassled by 5-0 for taking a weapon into court and still won my motion. Stick around for the after show and I'll tell the tale. Welcome to the 23rd episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I am a partner with the boutique law firm of Morris & Stone. Our primary practice areas are free speech and defamation, and of course, anti-slap law. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Not the bottom law firm. The Top Law Firm. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Aaron Morris ESQ. In this episode, we're going to dive into a case that I was consulted on, which beautifully illustrates the interplay between the privileges of Civil Code Section 47 and the anti slap analysis. Also, there's a great program I use every day in my practice called Note Scraps. Note Scraps. It normally costs $20, but I talk the publisher into giving it to you for free. This isn't any kind of a promotion. I don't get a kickback. I just thought you'd enjoy this really useful program. Stick around and I'll tell you where to download the program later. Absolutely free. Another fantastic couple of weeks at Morrison Stone. Back in episode 13, I discussed three motions you can bring during a trial. A motion for directed verdict, a motion for non-suit, and one no one seems to know about, a motion for judgment. Be sure to listen to episode 13 for a great explanation of the various motions and the pros and cons of each. For the most part, I favor a motion for judgment because, unlike the other two, it permits the court to weigh the evidence that has been presented. This podcast offers me the tremendous advantage of being forced to research in detail the things I want to discuss with you. So in the case of researching the standards of a motion for judgment, I really got to focus for the first time on what a great motion it can be. And since that podcast, episode 13, I've employed it on three different occasions to dispose of an action. So it was with this case. The verdict came down a fortnight ago. Whenever I win, I wait two weeks to tell you so I can use the word fortnight. The trick when setting up a motion for judgment is to make certain that you don't do anything to fill in the gaps of the plaintiff's case. Be especially careful to limit your cross-examination. You have to be really firm with the judge that you want there to be a case-in-chief for the plaintiff and a case-in-chief for the defense. Very often, the court will propose that the parties put on witnesses only once, with both sides asking the questions that they need to ask of that particular witness, so the witness can be excused and doesn't have to stick around. If you want to have a shot at a motion for judgment, you must reject that approach. On the other hand, if you don't want to give up your chance to examine a witness if your motion for judgment doesn't work, make it very clear to the judge that while you are limiting any cross-examination, you intend to recall the witness on your case-in-chief. Obviously, don't let the judge excuse the witness. So in this trial, I represented a corporation and its sole shareholder. Counsel for Plaintiff put on no evidence of damages, but he did make a lame attempt at piercing the corporate veil to make the individual personally liable in case the court did find a way to award damages. He called my client in his case in chief and showed him some document which he claimed showed that my client was in reality doing business as some other entity rather than the named corporation. So on cross, I cleared up only that one point and left unchallenged all the claims that my client was the Antichrist. Plaintiff then rested and I brought an oral motion for judgment primarily on the grounds that plaintiff had failed to show any damages. Well, the court agreed and granted the motion, case over for my two clients. Needless to say, the clients are impressed as hell every time I pull that rabbit out of my hat. 
Okay, let's get to a slap case. This is the case I was brought in on to consult. It's an unreported case, but it cites to a very important published case and provides a good roadmap for this particular anti-slap analysis. I'm going to lay out the facts of the case and see if you can anticipate how this was resolved. The case is Edelati versus Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, Inc. out of Solano County. Dr. Edelati is a dentist, a dental surgeon to be precise. She was going along singing a song when all of a sudden she discovered that Kaiser had sent out a letter to some of her patients informing them that she was on a federal list of excluded providers suspected of fraud. Kaiser informed the patients that it could no longer fill any prescriptions issued by Dr. Edelate because she was on this list. And by the way, federal law requires Kaiser to send out those letters when a doctor is, in fact, on the list. If a doctor turns up on the list, Kaiser is required to send a letter to all patients that Kaiser will no longer be able to provide them service, or in this case, no longer able to provide them with prescriptions. But it was undisputed that Kaiser had screwed up. There was a doctor with a similar name on the list, and Kaiser claimed that it had mistakenly sent out the letter about Dr. Adelanti. There was no dispute that the letter was a mistake, but there was a dispute as to whether Kaiser had made the mistake out of negligence or had done so maliciously. So Kaiser then sends out a letter to the same patients correcting its error. But Dr. Adelanti was not satisfied, and she filed an action against Kaiser for defamation and false light invasion of privacy. Kaiser responded with an anti-slap motion. So there you have it. You have all the facts. Kaiser sent out a letter falsely stating that Dr. Edelate was on the government's fraud list. Dr. Edelate claimed that was defamatory. Kaiser brought an anti-slap motion. How will the court rule on the anti-slap motion? Go ahead and take a minute to decide. I'll wait. Okay, that's pretty annoying. Let me give you the competing arguments to help you out. In its motion, Kaiser argued that its conduct, although a mistake, was, quote, in furtherance of the exercise of the constitutional right of free speech in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. The issue of public interest, according to Kaiser, was Medicare funding and fraudulent Medicare claims. In response, Dr. Adelati argued that, quote, a private letter to 38 patients of a dentist speaking solely to a matter affecting only those persons not addressed to any issue and not calling for the recipients to take any type of action is not speech on an issue of public interest. So the anti-slap motion, as argued by the parties, all came down to whether the letter sent by Kaiser involved a matter of public interest. Now I'll ignore for a moment what I already know about the outcome of the case, and I'm going to make these observations. This is how I would analyze a situation like this. I would say that these facts do not satisfy the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. Kaiser is trying to shoehorn in a matter of public interest in order to avoid its screw-up. But the letter is not about Medicare fraud. The letter merely states, falsely, that Dr. Edelate is on Santa's naughty list. I would also think that even if the court were to determine that this is a matter of public interest, the anti-slap motion would be denied under the second prong. The letter was false and defamatory, so Dr. Edelate can satisfy the second prong. Unless, and this is a big unless, the letter falls under some privilege. I would be very concerned about Civil Code Section 47's common interest privilege. Kaiser would certainly have reason to believe that the recipients of this letter would want to know that any prescriptions from Dr. Edelati would not be honored. So that's my analysis. What do you think? Well, the trial court granted Kaiser's anti-slap motion. The trial court found that the letter from Kaiser represented an issue of significant public interest, namely the expenditure of Medicare funds. I don't agree with that conclusion at all. The letter was not about the expenditure of Medicare funds. Again, it was just a letter about whether Dr. Edelate was on the list. 
As to the second prong, the trial court concluded that Dr. Edelate could not prevail on her claim because the letter was privileged. Just as I discussed in a moment ago, the court found that the letter fell under the common interest privilege. Well, Dr. Edelati appealed the court's granting of the anti-slap motion. Dr. Edelati made the usual argument that defamatory statements are not constitutionally protected. I see this argument a lot. It seems like everybody has this in their boilerplate language, and they, they start out by saying, well, defamatory speech is never protected speech. Well, that, that argument is absolutely true, but it doesn't get you very far. For a statement to be defamatory, true, it must be unprivileged. So this argument that attorneys make that defamatory speech is unprotected is kind of pointless because the ultimate issue is usually whether it was privileged. The Court of Appeal agreed and said, don't bore us with that argument. But Dr. Adelante also repeated the argument that she'd made to the trial court that the letters were not a matter of public interest. And on that point, the Court of Appeal agreed. And here's where it gets interesting. Much of the Court of Appeal's decision in Adelante v. Kaiser is spent discussing the case of Lafabre v. Lafabre. I think I'm still pronouncing that wrong, even though I looked it up on YouTube. Turns out there's a whole YouTube video about how to pronounce Le Fabre. Le Fèvre. Le Fèvre. Yeah, I'm not even close. Le Fèvre. Let's say Le Fèvre. Le Fèvre represents a tiny window of opportunity to get around the privilege of a police report. Now, I'm going to dive deep into Le Fèvre on a future episode, but for purposes of today's discussion, in Le Fèvre, a woman filed a false police report about her husband as a tactic to gain an advantage in a child custody battle. She falsely claimed that her husband had threatened to kill her and the children. The husband was prosecuted for violation of Penal Code Section 422, which is making a criminal threat. Now, I just have to read you this one part from the decision. Imagine if you're the prosecutor and this happened. Remember, you've, you've decided to prosecute the husband based on the wife's claim that uh, he had threatened the wife and children. And here's what the jury did. At the time of the verdict, the jurors, acting on their own volition, selected the jury foreperson to read the following statement into the record. We, the jury, believe that the absence of any real investigation by law enforcement is shocking, and we agree that this appears to follow a rule of guilty until proven innocent. There was no credible evidence supporting the indictment. We believe prosecuting this as a crime was not only a waste of time, money, money and energy for all involved, but is an affront to our justice system. This jury recommends restitution to the defendant for costs and fees of defending himself against these charges. This jury requests that our collective statement be made available to any future legal action relating to these parties. Obviously, the jury saw through this and could see that this was uh, the wife using the threat as a means to coerce greater child custody. But can you imagine being the prosecutor on that? Basically, the jury is saying, award the attorney's fees. This prosecutor or the state should have to pay the attorney's fees incurred by this defendant. So the judge that presided over the husband's criminal trial, he absolutely agreed with the jurors and granted the husband's motion for a finding of factual innocence. So after this major victory, the husband in Lefebvre uh, sued his wife for malicious prosecution and false arrest for the report she made to the police. The trial court and court of appeal followed the holding of Flatley versus Morrow and concluded that since the police report violated the penal code against false police reports, it was illegal activity and therefore did not fall under the anti-slap statute. So Dr. Adelate cited Lefebvre... Well, let me see how to pronounce that again. Lefebvre. Lefebvre. Okay, so Dr. Adelate cited Lefebvre... Uh, versus Lefebvre, for the proposition that the letter was defamatory and illegal and therefore did not fall under the anti-slap statute. The Court of Appeal rejected this argument. It concluded that the conduct must be criminally illegal in order to take it out of the Section 425.16 protections. 
But the Court of Appeal did agree that the letter from Kaiser did not amount to a matter of public interest. The Court of Appeal reached the seemingly obvious conclusion that Kaiser did not issue the letter as as part of some general discussion about Medicare fraud. Rather, Kaiser issued the letter because it was required to do so if it wanted to continue to operate as a Medicare provider. So the Court of Appeal reversed the granting of the anti-slap motion by the trial court. Dr. Etalate is free to have her day in court. But that result is not what makes the reasoning of Etalate versus Kaiser important. The real importance of Etalate versus Kaiser is the reasoning contained in the penultimate paragraph of the decision. I'm sure you know this, but penultimate means next to last. I hear people all the time use it to mean the super ultimate. The penultimate creature from hell emerged from the cave. Unless the author meant to say that there was another creature still to emerge, that sentence makes no sense. I actually wrote to an author once and said, uh, you're using that incorrectly, and he wrote back to me expressing his embarrassment. Anyway, here is the penultimate paragraph. Because we hold that Kaiser's conduct did not arise from protected activity, we do not reach the second prong of the anti-slap analysis, which evaluates Edelante's probability of prevailing on her claims. Kaiser may have a valid, privilege-based defense, which it may present in another procedural context, but such a defense may not be presented by way of an anti-slap motion. For that proposition that Edelante court cited to Lefebvre and uh, Flatley v. Morrow, which stated that Civil Code Section 47 may limit a party's liability, but that does not mean an allegedly defamatory communication is also a protected communication for purposes of Section 425.16. So the bottom line of the unreported case of Edelate versus Kaiser and the case of Lefebvre, Lefebvre, is that any privileges that Civil Code Section 47 may confer are unimportant as to the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. Simply stated, whether the conduct may be privileged has applicability only to the second prong when you are determining likelihood of success. If the conduct is not protected speech, then you don't reach the second prong. And the bottom line of that bottom line is that where there is a privilege that applies, defeating an anti-slap motion may be a pyrrhic victory. The issue of whether Kaiser's letter is protected under the common interest privilege is still undecided in Edelante. She may still lose on a motion for summary judgment or have everything excluded on a motion, excuse me, on an in limine motion, or she may lose at trial. Before we call it a day, I've got two tools for you to check out, one of which is free. Long ago in a galaxy far away, I used to use a program called Tornado Notes. Some of you uh, from the DOS days, you may recall this program. It was a great little database program you could use. You would just type in whatever little nugget you needed to refer to in the future. And later on, when you went to search for that, as you typed the letters of your search term, the notes would disappear until you were down to just the notes that contained whatever it was you wanted. It It was a great program. But like most publishers, they felt like they had to make it more and more feature-rich. So ultimately, it got too complicated and nobody liked it anymore, so it went away. Uh, I always missed Tornado Notes. And then a a couple of years ago, I found a program called Note Scraps. It's the same sort of thing. Here's how I typically use it. I'll get calls all the time, somebody wanting, for example, a referral to um, a medical malpractice attorney. We don't do medical malpractice. So the first time I find myself going to, to Time Matters and looking up a medical malpractice attorney that I know... Once I realize I've done that, I'll set up this little note. Now, when a caller wants a medical malpractice attorney, I can just hit a a key code combination, start typing medical malpractice, and all the information will pop up. Uh, It's a great program. It saves me time every day. And when I found it, I noticed that 
they seem to stop supporting it way back with uh, Windows Vista. When you go to the website, it's only available for uh, Windows XP and Windows Vista. Fortunately, I installed it and it worked anyway. It even works on Windows 10. Sorry, um, Apple users, I, I can't help you out with this, but I spent $20 on it back, uh, back, back when I got it. Well, recently, a reader of my Practice of Law blog wrote to say that the link to pay for the program was down. You could still download it, but you were limited to the trial version. So because I'm the kind of guy who gives, 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 and never takes, for you, I contacted the company and persuaded them to give it to you for free. Now, there's no upsells here. I don't have an affiliate commission or anything. It's just a free program, a great program that I wanted to get to you for free. So you need a long authorization code that I can't provide here, but Go to californiaslaplaw.com forward slash note scraps. That's all one word, N-O-T-E-S-C-R-A-P-S, note scraps. And that will take you to the article with all the information you need to download and install the program. And in case you missed it last time, I also got you a great deal on, on the Bench Reporter Service. The Bench Reporter Service makes available to you all of the tentative rulings from the superior courts in the seven largest counties in California. Being able to look at how your particular judge rules on particular motions is, is a huge advantage to preparing your motion or opposition and for oral argument. I got the fine people at Bench Reporter to let you try out the service for a dollar. For a single buck, you can uh, go to californiaslaplaw.com forward slash tentative. Use the coupon code TOPLAWFIRM, all one word, to get this uh, fantastic Bench Reporter service for a month for just one dollar. I hope you found the discussion of Etta Latte versus Kaiser and Lefabra versus Lefabra useful. The most important takeaway is that even if there is an applicable privilege, you may be able to survive an anti-slap motion if you can convince the court that the matter does not satisfy the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. However, it may be a short victory because you will still need to deal with the privilege, but at least you will save the attorney's fees from a successful anti-slap motion if you're on the wrong side. This gives me a tool to possibly save attorneys and their clients from ill-conceived anti-slap motions. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. So I promised at the top of the show to tell you about my run-in with the deputies at the courthouse over a concealed weapon and how I won my motion despite the distraction. Of course, I'm exaggerating slightly to pique your interest, but it is a funny story. I fired a client and I had to bring a motion to be relieved as counsel. So I showed up at court to argue my motion, and there was a temporary judge on the bench that day. The, uh, my client did not show up to oppose the motion. Now, the temporary judge had apparently just been brought in to rule on all of the day's law and motion matters, so all of the attorneys who stipulated to having him hear their motions waited a long time while he considered all the motions. He was in the back, uh, apparently reading through them, and one by one he would send out his tentative rulings. Right. So I waited, and I finally got my tentative ruling, and it said that he was continuing the hearing to a later date so the regular judge could hear it. Well, that put me in a bad position because if the case was continued, I was going to have to deal with some matters on the case that would arise before the next hearing. So I thought about it for a while and I thought, well, he's just he's just punting it. So I don't think I can turn him around on this. So I went ahead and left and went back to the office. So I drive back to the office and I I sat down in my partner's office to tell her what had happened. And as I was talking to her, I decided that I really should have stayed and argued. My initial thought had been that, you know, if the judge didn't want to hear it, I I wasn't going to be able to turn him around on that. 
there wasn't much of an argument I could make. But then I decided that if I told him, attorney to attorney, that it would greatly complicate matters if he did not rule today, he, he might decide the motion. My partner thought I was crazy when I announced that I was going to go back to court and argue the motion. So I drive back to court, and as is always the case, every light was red and every slow driver ended up in front of me. I finally get to court, I jog up to the metal detector and the x-ray machine, I throw all my stuff in the tray, I pass through the metal detector, hoping against hope that I, I will get to court before the judge leaves the bench. Now, years ago, I received this simple little keychain with the name of the firm. It was one of these companies that personalized stuff, trying to get you to buy it, and so they'd sent me a sample. So here was this little keychain with the name of the firm, and that keychain happened to have this little letter opener blade, maybe half an inch long. I've passed it through the x-ray machine probably a thousand times. I've even taken it onto flights with no issue. But on this particular day, the deputy decided that was a weapon and could not be taken into court. Now, I should have just pulled it off my keys and had them throw it away, but the deputy was being so unreasonable that I, I felt like I had to take a stand. So I packed up my stuff, went back outside, took it off of my keychain, and I ditched this alleged weapon on a window ledge intending to retrieve it after court. So I then go back into the court, go back through the metal detector and x-ray machine. I finally get to the courtroom, and as I walk in, the temporary judge is leaving the bench and taking off his robe. I ask if I can be heard on number 12 on the calendar. He agrees, sits back down, hears my argument, and grants the motion to be relieved. I left the courtroom, I left the courthouse, went back to the window ledge, and my little free keychain letter opener was gone. I, I suspect the deputy. But hey, it has the firm's name on it, so it's a constant advertisement of the firm to whomever stole it. Never a dull moment at Morrison Stone. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk with you soon.